Generally, the consumers are kind of primed by renewable energy because they believe in it. They care about it. They want renewable energy, or in the case of community solar, they support solar. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm excited to interview Tom Matsey. He's the president and CEO of Clean Choice Energy. After spending 15 years helping people get involved in politics through technology, Tom wanted to do something more about climate change. He had a vision to make renewable energy accessible for all and founded Clean Choice Energy to do just that. Clean Choice Energy expands access to clean energy through clean electricity, community solar, and offset products. The company empowers people and businesses to cut emissions, support renewable energy, and live cleaner lives. Founded in 2012, the company has become one of the fastest growing businesses in America as ranked on the Inc. 500 and Deloitte Technologies Fast 500. There are many interesting insights that Tom provides in the interview. Some of them are how Clean Choice Energy is the easiest solution for customers to procure renewable Renewable energy, how Clean Choice Energy uses data science to lower customer acquisition costs. He talks about how cloud computing is creating innovation throughout the industry, not just in solar, and Clean Choice's competitive advantages being a developer of community solar projects compared to other developers out there. I appreciate you listening to this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I would like to thank Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Summit Ridge Energy is the leading owner and operator of community solar projects in the United States. Thank you again to Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode. You'll learn more about them during this podcast. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I'm really excited to have Tom Matsey. He's the president, CEO, and founder of Clean Choice Energy. Thank you, Tom, for making the time today. Benoit, I'm really happy to be here. It would be great to hear your insights on what's happening in renewables and in clean energy. Can you first talk about what made you start Clean Choice Energy and what the company does? Sure. I mean, I started the company after my own experience as a rooftop solar customer which I find awesome and exciting. And I encourage everyone to try to do rooftop solar if they're able to, but it was difficult. And I was living in Washington, D.C., which provides a lot of incentives for people to adopt solar, but it took eight months. I had to own a roof. I had have the risk tolerance for a construction project on my home. And my insight was that a lot of people would not be able to participate in rooftop solar And so there needed to be an alternative that was easier than rooftop solar for consumers who didn't own their home, who didn't have the credit or didn't have the risk tolerance, just something to make renewable energy easier for consumers. My personal motivations were kind of a couple different things. I grew up in Pittsburgh and I got to see the impact of dirty energy systems on communities and having experienced that firsthand. And also I have a deep commitment to finding climate solutions. And so with those insights, I said, I'm going to make a company that makes renewable energy a service instead of a home improvement project. Not knowing much about energy at the time, I had spent my prior 15 years working as an advocate in the nonprofit world and politics on a variety of different issues, the economy, the environment, you know, peace. But I knew that I knew how to get customers and I could find people who were bona fide energy experts who could help me build the business. And that's really the founding story behind Clean Choice to make renewable energy easy for consumers. 
And from then, you know, we've grown both into a large retail electricity provider of renewable energy, as well as now a community solar provider and community solar developer. That's interesting. And that's really helpful to understand. And I think one of the things that's unique is that you act as an energy supplier, but then you're also developing community solar projects and selling that power to your subscribers, which is a unique business model. And two, by the way, totally different sort of types of companies and skill sets. What made you go that direction? It's interesting. Well, I think I look at them as somewhat related products to the consumer. From a consumer's perspective, they seem similar. They are different, of course. Community solar, while capacity limited, right? There's only so many megawatts the states are permitting, provides a discount to consumers, whereas the renewable retail electricity right now is unsubsidized and has to purchase RECs. So it's usually sold at a premium to the customer. And so I look at community solar as a kind of complementary product. Consumers can be on both services at the same time. You have to choose one of them. They're not exclusive. I think that we had like a 1.0 with retail renewable energy, and that's a very large market. There's, I think, upwards of 6 million Americans who are on some sort of renewable retail electricity product, either with their utility and vertically integrated monopoly utilities or in competitive supply markets. And community solar is you know, still very nascent and you know, younger. That's kind of the 2.0 version of a renewable energy choice for a consumer. But the challenge we have there is it's often very capacity limited. There are only so many megawatts available. So what I hope is also then we eventually find a 3.0 version of the renewable energy service, which would combine the fact that capacity is uncapped in the retail electricity market. And it's you know, one-to-one. You can build as much as you can sell. And some of the benefits in terms of economic benefits that comes with the community solar product. We're a few years away from that, probably. How do you educate like the customer, specifically like a residential customer who might not be familiar with, you know, community solar and maybe buying solar at a premium with a rec product compared to like getting a discounted based on buying it from a solar system? I mean, that must be. Yeah, I think, you know, we're able to differentiate the products. They have different names or starters. And the community feature and being able to provide a discount by avoid paying the kind of quote unquote tools to use as a metaphor, not a literal, you know, fact to move like wind power from Western Pennsylvania to New Jersey, that avoided costs for the transmission system, you know, is one of the reasons community solar is able to provide an economic benefit to the consumer where the retail electricity product is not. What we largely find, though, for our consumers is that they are ready for a renewable energy choice, right? They're not actually needing a lot of explanation of the benefits of renewable energy. They want renewable energy. What they want to know is how this product and service works, what the terms and conditions are, what the price, how the billing works, will their utility treat them differently, those sorts of questions they they need answers to. And we have to provide those answers before there's a sale. Generally, the consumers are kind of primed to buy renewable energy because they believe in it. They care about it. They want renewable energy. Or in the case of community solar, they support solar. Yeah, that is very helpful to understand. And the customer is really focused on getting renewable energy, not necessarily understanding you know, the differences, but understanding the terms and conditions and how it applies. Yeah, it's more like we're showing up like, here's the toolkit. Yeah. Like you already knew you wanted this. Here's your instruction manual for how to get it. Like that sort of approach kind of helps consumers connect with the service. You know, when you start to go into describing how silicon PV creates electricity or, you know, all that, that's very confusing to customers. They don't need to know the physics. That's a great response to that. That's for sure. 
And you talked about it actually briefly, but can you go into more detail about how Clean Choice procures renewable energy? Sure. So today, the procurement of renewable energy to be sold as a retail electricity provider is a regulated product. There's a definition provided by the Federal Trade Commission, as well as state laws. And what those regulations say is that you can make a claim about renewable energy if you buy the renewable energy credit from the wind farm or solar farm, whatever the services you're providing to the consumer, whatever the technology offering is to the consumer. And so as a retail electricity provider, we're also a load-serving entity, which means we have to buy the electricity component in addition to the renewable energy component. (laughs) We also have to buy capacity, ancillary services, transmission service, a whole bunch of different pieces that are more than just the energy piece. And so we're a member of the wholesale power markets, you know, just like the utilities are, just like the power plant owners and operators are. In Mid-Atlantic, in Midwest, that's PJM. In New York, it's New York ISO. In New England, it's the ISO New England. We're not in Texas. That would be ERCOT. And we buy electricity through that wholesale market. We buy financial swaps from swap dealers who might be large energy companies or investment banks. And then we buy the renewable energy credits typically from the people who own the wind farm or own the solar farm. And the combination of those things together is what makes the retail renewable electricity service. We try to maximize the impact for our customers. And what's one of the things that differentiates us from some of our competitors. So some of our competitors may be buying a renewable energy credit certificate from Texas or very far away from the customer. We're trying to procure regionally, you know, we'll buy from the same ISO that you're in or just adjacent ISO or just the adjacent state ISO. We're typically trying to buy from newer projects, which is defined as projects that have been built at this point since 2006, the last 15 years. And what that excludes is things that are like fully amortized in which they're outside of their financing already. Because that stuff's already built. It's already paid for. What's your impact if you're not contributing to the financing? So the tenure of the project, the regionality of the project, and then we have technology exclusions as well. We are mostly wind power in the retail electricity product with some solar. I think we're up to 25% solar in some places. And then we have some hydro in a few places as well where you can find newer run of river. But the general you know, kind of rules of this are very much set by state and federal regulators And then we also try to curate in order to maximize the impact for the customer. Because that's our basic handshake deal with the customer. They're paying us in order to make an impact for them and contribute to the renewable energy economy. For sure. And that's a huge differentiator that you're talking about with what you're doing. I've actually never heard of a third-party energy supplier who does that. And you know, I think um, obviously the primary reason why they're doing it further from where the actual electricity is generated is to get cheaper. It's cheaper, which maybe our audience might not know that. And that's great. And as well as what these sort of exclusions with technology, having more solar, like you're potentially buying a higher rec and the financing as well. Right. But that obviously has more support for the renewable energy. Yeah. And we're also excluding some technologies like biomass, which some utilities include in their renewable standards. Right. And there's probably a place for biomass, although I don't like whole tree biomass. But our customers, when you talk to them about renewable energy, the picture in their head is a wind farm, a solar farm or a hydroelectric dam. Right. They don't think about the kind of more esoteric forms of renewable energy like, you know, biomass. And so the kind of the way I think about it is nothing that burns. 
That's you know, and in terms of like our differentiator to how we procure the renewable energy shift credits, an example of this, New York State publishes environmental disclosure labels for what they call energy service companies or ESCOs in New York. And I think we are still the only company with an environmental disclosure label in recent years that is only 100% renewable energy and only from wind and solar. And in order to achieve that, it's effectively procuring from within the same catch basin as the clean energy standard in New York. Something I'm proud of. I mean, their clean energy standard is constantly moving. So it's a, I hope we can continue to meet that standard. But, you know, it does kind of speak to how we try to differentiate ourselves. I would think maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe at certain times your product might be a little more expensive because... The- it definitively is. We actually go as far as disclosing that's more expensive to the customer, right? We obviously publish a price, but like in addition, we say this is more expensive than your utility rate, yeah. and which is unusual for a lot of products. But we think that a lot of customers are hearing a lot of discount offers in the market, and they might assume that any commercial offer coming to them could be a discount. And so therefore, it's important because this is not a discount to like make it clear that this is a premium product. And it's really for the customer who is looking to maximize their environmental impact. If that's our customer base, this is, you know, there are 17 million Americans who are members of environmental organizations. They represent nearly $20 billion of electricity sales. We're happy swimming in those waters. Like, you know, we're not saying our product is for everybody in the country. That's definitely, I think, great because you're targeting a customer. Obviously, you know, they have a lot of energy or usage or payments. And I think that's a smart way. It's very different way of differentiating from most third-party suppliers. And that's unique. And in quarter, what and who Clean Choice is. Can you talk about maybe other ways that Clean Choice might differentiate as a you know third-party energy supplier or even as a community solar developer? One big one is that we only provide 100% renewable energy products and community solar products, right? And so your typical third-party energy provider will have a menu of, you know, kind of gray energy, the typical state fuel mix, right? Whatever that is. And then they might have a little bit greener version and maybe it's 50% green and then they might have 100% green. They'll have a menu. There's only one thing on our menu, 100% renewable energy. We might have some flavors where you could do a product with some more solar in it, or you could do a 99-1 wind, or you could do 100% wind, but it's only renewable energy. So that's a big differentiator. The second is, you know, as a company, we try to stay actively involved in advocating for the expansion of renewable energy and renewable energy policies. And so you're not just getting a service from us, you're also buying from a company that you may share your values and together that, you know, our view for the future and what the world is that we're working towards. And for our customers, that's important. You know, they care deeply about climate change and they want their company they're buying from to share their values. You know, that's one of our differentiators as well. Tom, if you want to talk about as a community solar developer, how you differentiate. Because that's a little harder, right? So as a community solar developer, as you know, your relationship as developers with somebody who owns a piece of land or owns a building that has a large roof, that's definitely harder to to like have a different to that landowner or that you know, person owns that building. They're not always the people who have the environmental like focus. They're looking for how to maximize value for something they own. It's a real asset. It's important to their family. It's important to the income of their family. I think we do, you know, present our company for who we are 
And we often win a lot of land deals because they just like us a little bit more, right? We're not, you know, calling in from California. There's somebody in their community, in their state who we typically are either employing or working with directly. And they like that piece as well. You know, a lot of developers have tricks like this, you know, not tricks, but like practices rather. And so I don't know if we're exactly unique in that regard. I do think one of the skill sets we have as developers that we understand the consumer market. You know, with Community Solar, for example, you're typically having to sell the output of that to customers in a very narrow geographic area. And so it's important to know whether or not there's a large enough market in that geography, whether or not there are enough customers in that geography where you want to build that solar farm to actually buy the offtake from it. And some parts of New York, for example, they've run into this challenge of like they're out of customers, right? There's only so many people who've wanted to sign up and there's only 100,000 you know, people who have utility service in Orange and Rockland or one of the other utilities up there. You know, Because we understand demographics and we have a marketing division and data science division on the kind of consumer marketing side of the business. We understand these markets really well. And we also have a point of view because we're an energy company of the utility rates in those markets. Are they going to be going up? Are they going to be going down? You know, a lot of insights we have that support the solar development business. Those are great points. I was going to ask, obviously, you talked about customer acquisition and management for your own projects. Do you do it for other developers as well or specifically? We have in the past, I think. We're fully committed at the moment with our own projects. And I think we may come back to the market in six or eight months to offer it again to third parties. We prefer to work together with other developers to jointly develop the projects and then offer our services as part of that joint development agreement. We think that that leads to a better kind of relationship with the developer and a better outcome for the customers who are ultimately going to be the off-takers, but also a better outcome for the likely asset owner, the financier who wants to own the project. Because if we're not just the kind of in and out, you know, provider of a service, but if we put some skin in the game, putting our own capital, you know, that gets to better outcomes. So we prefer to do joint development agreements and then offer our services as part of the development arrangement. Yeah, it is something we have done in the past and we work for currently third-party asset owners. We're managing solar farms for them in customer management in Minnesota, in Massachusetts, in New York, in Maryland, not yet in New Jersey. It's a small market. It's probably a sub $100 million market. So it's like hard to you know justify as much of an investment in it unless we're also developing projects. That makes sense. And, you know, it was a great to hear how Clean Choice differentiates as a developer with the two key things that you said was like to know whether there's a market for the customers, which regular developer wouldn't know, but also as well as like forecasting of what prices are in energy. There's certain markets in upstate New York, as you likely know, there's just not a lot of people living there. Now, they've been changing the laws to be able to allow you to sell an upstate projects output to people in downstate New York. Well, I don't think that's actually been implemented yet. That'll help a lot. But in some of these counties, there's more cows than people. And yeah. <laughs> cows don't buy electricity. For sure. Yeah, that's a good point that you were talking about. I know it hasn't come into effect, but being able to sell from a northern part into like New York City or the suburbs where there are a lot more people. 
And so we've turned down business in the past because we said, we don't think the market's there for it. And like when we commit to something, you know, we're going to commit to a fixed cost and a fixed delivery date. And like, we could only do that if we felt we could actually deliver. (laughs) And so we've avoided getting into trouble and not hitting deadlines by declining some business, sometimes saying no. I think it's a good thing to be able to say no in a situation where you can't meet the expectations of the customer. And I'm sure you've had to say no to a lot of different opportunities to be able to stay in your lane and, you know, talk about what you're focused on. So, yeah, you know, the community solar market is still very nascent, right? I mean, I think we're maybe it's a 4,000 megawatt market, maybe five. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe it's on its way to seven or eight right now. If you get some more states, you get some more legislation done, it could be a lot bigger. But it's still very nascent, still very early days. It's going to be interesting to see like in the future how much it, it grows. And I'm sure, you know, you're excited about the opportunity as well in the future with most states. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I mean, I'm hearing more and more from states that are not actually states that are on the expansion list for the Industries Trade Association. Yeah. But there are people in those states who want community solar. And they are, you know, trying to figure out how to do it on their own without even policy support from the Industry Trade Association. And that just means it's a good idea and a good product. People like it and they want more of it. You know, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but obviously you mentioned how you got solar on your rooftop, but most customers can't get solar on the roof. And that's, that's right. why like, your product is an ideal product if, say, they're a renter or say there might be some sort of shading issues. So it's great that you realize, and it's the easiest way, right, for someone to go renewable by purchasing your product. It is. And, you know, I think more and more consumers' sustainability and the companies they buy from are really important things um, they care about and what they're looking for. It's almost like choosing you know, what team you want to be on. And that's how a lot of the customers think about it. They want to be on team renewable energy. <laughs> for sure. And then you're basically creating the solution for them where you're not getting into the weeds where they could trust you know, that you're going to do the best thing for them and what they're looking to do. That's right. I mean, all the complicated, messy stuff in the background, energy trading, renewable energy credit trading, credit support for those trades, like all those things. I mean, customers don't want to dig into that detail and understand. They can't actually. I mean, there's laws that kind of keep them from being able to go trade energy swaps. It's a good thing. We don't want them to do that. (laughs) But, uh, right. And so we wrap it up as an easy to understand service for the customer. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of this podcast. Summit Ridge Energy is the leading owner and operator of community solar projects in the United States. The team has been a strong force within the U.S. commercial solar market for years and was instrumental in the creation of virtual power purchase agreements and associated financing structures. Summit Ridge Energy has leveraged this experience to launch Summit Ridge Capital, a dedicated funding platform that acquires pre-operational community solar and battery storage projects. SRE also works with landowners across the country to maximize the value of their acreage by offering predictable lease income to host their solar farms. From site identification and system design to takeout financing to construction management, Summit Ridge Energy is the most complete solution provider in the community solar space. Summit Ridge Energy was interviewed twice on the Solar Maverick podcast. Definitely check out those episodes. The latest one was episode 87, how Summit Ridge Energy became one of the largest owners of community 
community solar project in the U.S. That was with Steve Rader, who's the CEO of the company, and Brian Dunn, who holds a dual role of COO, CFO for Summit Ridge Energy, and they're both founders of the company. And then there was an earlier interview, episode 26, a developer's perspective on the U.S. solar market with Steve Rader, who again is the CEO and founder of Summit Ridge Energy. If you want to learn more about Summit Ridge Energy, you could check them out at their website, which is srenergy.com or info at srenergy.com. We'll be also having in the notes of the podcast details about our sponsor. Thank you again to Summit Ridge Energy for sponsoring this episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast. Can you talk about like the different ways that you acquire customers? I know you've worked a lot in like the digital marketing space, but can you talk about, I've received a lot of letters from Clean Choice Energy, which is a great way because people don't really look at mail anymore or they look at mail more, you know, there's less mail coming compared to email. We're a multi-channel direct response marketer for our customer acquisition. And it includes digital, direct mail, in-person marketing events, whether it be tabling, very limited door-to-door, more of that in community solar. We don't do a lot of door-to-door in retail electricity. And there's partnerships as well. I think the balance is always around which channel can drive volume and which can control costs and quality of sale. But one thing that differentiates us as a business is we have a very big data science capability inside of our company. We employ data scientists. We own large data sets for the whole country. We're constantly modeling what utility you live in. How much electricity do you use in your home? Are you 5 megawatt hours a year or 15 or 20 megawatt hours a year? What's your elasticity around price? What's your likelihood to stick around? A lot of different factors. But that allows us to really make put the offer in front of the consumers who are interested in the product and then not bother other consumers who just aren't interested. And that kind of targeted approach, you know, gets us much better results as a business and, you know, strong financial results and outcomes that then allows us to keep fulfilling our mission for our customers. And so that's the virtuous cycle. We become a strong business. We are able to deliver on the mission for the customer. We're able to do more impact with more customers. But really, we are multi-channel. And we use the different tool to solve whatever the challenge is. So direct mail works really well for marketing in eight states and 36 markets all at once because you want to be able to have mail flights that are five, six million you know, packages because it drives down the cost. Door-to-door and tabling works really well when you need to sign up 400 customers in one specific market, in one specific county, you know, in one month. (laughs) It's like a community solar type problem, right? You know, we have a really capable marketing team led by an incredible marketing executive and her management team, and they know how to use all these tools very effectively. So the combination, if you look inside of our business, most of our team is either in marketing or in technology. And so the combination of our technology capabilities from data science to marketing automation with our marketing skills and our big data sets that we own really helps us acquire customers affordably. If the right customers are interested in the product, they're profitable as well. So we can be successful and keep delivering on the mission and impact for our customers. Yeah, that is really helpful. And it's interesting because it sounds like you found a better way of targeting your ideal customer, which you talked about before. You know, someone who wants to go into renewable energy. And that's interesting how you're using data science and a multi-pronged marketing channel to get them. It took years and millions, if not tens of millions of dollars of investment to get these tools built up and have these capabilities. But they 
allow us to, you know, kind of peer into the customer universe and find the right customers for the right product. We think we can apply this to other solutions and other problems in clean tech, including deployment of electric vehicles and EV charging and demand response, electrification services. But the data capabilities, you know, make us smarter about which customers want what sort of products. And what that does is it helps us control the customer acquisition cost. If you can do that, you can deploy to more customers. And I guess are a lot of customers uh, comfortable with procuring like energy online? Obviously, they could go to your website and sign up. But is that a you know popular channel for people to go to? Or it is. I'd say that different customers behave differently in different places. And so we certainly sign up thousands of customers online, and you know it is a profitable channel for us. One of the complexities of online marketing, in particular, is that. The internet is very contextual, meaning you see an ad for solar if you're searching for solar or electricity or energy. But if you're never searching for those terms, if you're only looking for sports scores and you know travel deals or, you know, or shopping, you're probably not going to be served advertising that's related to solar or your electricity bill or something like that. And so one of the challenges the pure digital marketing has, if you're trying to drive volume, if you just need a couple hundred customers, it's something different. But if you're trying to drive volume, one of the challenges of digital marketing is that there's not enough context. The universe of like people who are looking for that topic is not large enough to actually serve really big marketing programs, especially if those programs have to deliver in very narrow geographies, like just one corner or one utility market in New Jersey or something like that. Now, what's your alternative in those cases is also do partnerships. So you find large employers or local organizations, they have their own online channels to reach people in those communities as well. So there's lots of different tools marketers have to get the job done. Yeah, definitely. And that's a great point. I never thought about, you know, how there might not be enough, you know, qualified people when, you know, who are searching for solar specifically. It's one of the reasons rooftop solar costs a dollar a watt to acquire a customer. That's true. That's a great point. Which is, you know, for those who aren't familiar with these numbers, that's like a six or $7,000 customer acquisition cost or higher in order to enroll a rooftop solar homeowner. Not to go off the topic, but it was interesting to hear like how a local installer has a lot lower dollar per watt acquisition than a yeah. Um, referrals, see the truck with the number on the side of the truck, truck, Yes, those sorts of advantages. That is really interesting. And I appreciate you mentioning that because what you're really doing is lowering the customer acquisition cost, increasing the percentage that a customer will convert based yes. on what you're doing. And that's really like unique and a great perspective. So I appreciate you. You know, these techniques can be applied to lots of different problems around adoption of clean technologies. These are just a few. For sure. And that would be interesting to get your perspective on like, you know, you talked about clean choice 1.0, clean points 2.0, 3.0, but you actually mentioned about like, obviously, electric vehicles, some of these other technologies where you could use the millions of dollars of tools that you've created. Can you talk about like what you see as like the next steps for clean choice or what you see? 
Like, sure. I mean, right now our business plan is to focus on the businesses we're running. Sure. You know, we want to be excellent in running our competitive renewable retail electricity business. We would be excellent in running our community solar business, our solar development business. Of course, we're always looking ahead. You know, one of the challenges is that consumer demand is not quite met up with the supply that's out there, right? So if you want an electric car, you can get one. And there are more and more customers buying electric cars, definitively, like Tesla's crushing it. It's still not like so big that you can offer differentiated products or services that are just for EV owners, right? Yeah. The one and a half million or two million like Tesla owners, whatever the number is, you're only going to get a small sliver of those who might want a, you know, insurance product that's different or a warranty product that's different or some sort of charging product that's different. Now, in 10 years, it's going to be a very different market. So it's a little early for some of these other products and services. Electrification has similar complications. There's some markets where it's not less expensive to electrify. New Jersey, New York have very expensive distribution rates, very high distribution rates. That makes it a little challenging to move off of gas in some of those markets. Now, it just means it's a bigger project where you're also doing efficiency and you're also doing other things in the home. Rooftop solar, you should go for that. But electrification is still a little nascent. So we're very much focused on our current businesses while we're always watching these other opportunities that are out there. Although it still seems very nascent. I was reading on your website about like the clean commute product. I know you talked about EVs, but can you talk about how your clean commute product? Works? Sure. I mean, what we're doing there is we're testing the opportunity for a consumer to use carbon offsets. And those aren't for everybody, but some consumers do want you know, carbon offsets. I don't think we can offset your way to net zero. I believe you have to actually get off fossil fuels. But for some consumers, they're not yet ready to pull the trigger on a big CapEx you know, investment in a new car to go electric or whatever it is. And so for them, the offset is still an important opportunity for them. And I can't remember who our exact partners are on the Clean Commute Offset product, but it's a very good partner who has a very good carbon credit project that we are pleased to support. And what it's really doing is using natural systems typically trees, other agricultural practices, to sequester the carbon out of the atmosphere into the soils, which is ultimately, as part of drawdown for climate change, we're going to need to do more and more of carbon sequestration using natural systems in addition to maybe some other approaches. I'm not sure if the mechanical ones are going to be ever efficient, yes. you know, carbon capture sequestration attached to a coal plant, or, but certainly we know natural systems have a lot of capacity. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for explaining that. And that's great that you're supporting those natural carbon sequestration. The other thing that I was going to ask, I guess, what are you seeing next for renewables and solar? Obviously, you know, a lot of things are going to change, as you mentioned, in the next 10 years. What is like, I guess, something that you're paying attention to or... Yeah, I mean, look, so this is going to be a 30 to 40 year super cycle of deployment of new infrastructure to address either climate change mitigation or climate change adaptation and probably both. Right. So we're going to be needing to build the entire energy system, rebuild it, a whole new energy system over the next 30 years, hopefully faster. That means solar development is just going to continue endlessly. Just keep going. It'll just constantly be going. Same with wind. I think we're going to see offshore wind. If you said like what's going to be very different 10 years from now, yeah. offshore wind is going to be huge. Right. And it's going to employ tens of thousands of people, you know, help those people live a middle-class life. That's a great and exciting story. I think the other thing is the deployment of distributed energy resources, whether it's energy storage, responsive load controls, microgrids, you know, solar, rooftop solar storage, other DER resources 
and how they integrate into the grid, how they provide grid services, how they really help us get that last 20% of reduction in carbon emissions to get to net zero. That's something I'm keeping an eye on. And I think the other piece here is for consumers, they're going to be looking for more and more for resiliency services, you know, backup power. And that's a complicated thing because it's still a pretty privileged group of people who can afford to have backup power for their home. But it's going to be a more important need, not just for homeowners, but also for communities, for service providers in communities, whether it be hospitals or healthcare clinics or you know schools or daycares. So I think I'm watching you know the macro trend around renewable energy being built out, offshore wind, distributed energy resources, and the resiliency services. The other thing I would say is I often talk about, we don't even know everything yet, is the most important technology development is not a new battery or new solar module. It's actually cloud computing and the ability to do very affordably lots of storage of data and computations and automation. And we don't even yet completely understand how cloud computing is going to create new opportunities in clean tech, but it will. In my own business's example, I mean, I talked about what we do with data science. What we do 15 years ago would have taken a server room, like a room in a data center, right? We would have had 15 EMC machines and like, you know, a couple of sun workstations. And now that's all done very seamlessly in the cloud, you know, with AWS or Azure or whatever the service is. So cloud computing is also massively changing the world. And with it comes also new tools for categorization and making decisions, machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence tools, other technology tools as well. Yeah, I never even thought about cloud computing, but that is a great trend. And it'll be amazing to see how uh, it'll change, how I just think about how the grid will operate a lot more efficiently in the future and procure and use DERs more efficiently. Well, eventually, so if you think about those DERs, you ultimately need, you know, resources talking to each other and with the grid, right? And that's going to happen in the cloud. And the ability to fast computations to make decisions instantaneously, how to deploy, curtail, charge, you know, invert, convert, whatever it is, going to take uh, some very smart systems. You know, one of the things that really impressed me, you come from a very different background. You saw like an issue when you had your solar installation on your home that took obviously a lot of time and you created business around it. Can you tell like the listeners about what your background was before and what gave you the confidence to be able to start something that people would think is very different when... Really- Especially after you hear about my background, right? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I spent 15 years in advocacy and democratic politics prior to starting my company. The company formed in April or excuse me, November 2011. Our first revenue dollar was April of 2013. So it was a year and a half to essentially build the business. But in my prior career, I mean, I worked for the AFL-CIO, the Democratic National Committee. I worked for MoveOn.org, all in kind of the national mobilization and political and public affairs and campaigning layer for those organizations. You know, my job was to go win campaigns on issues or to mobilize, you know, supporters or raise money, whatever it was, using internet and data technology. I was the internet director for the AFL-CIO, internet director at the Kerry campaign, the Democratic National Committee, national campaign director and Washington director for moveon.org. All those experiences really gave me tools to understand how technology can help you scale solutions how to use data science and big data to find your supporters and your activists who might need to be mobilized. 
And those skills are very applicable to the work we do around customer acquisition. And I suppose you'd say that, okay, so why would I think I could go run an energy company having never run an energy company (laughs) previously? I knew how to do two things. One is I thought I could figure out how to get to customers, right? And that's proven true. The second is I knew I could find people who would join the company, join the cause, who had all those skills I didn't have. And that really the entrepreneur's job is to actually be the person who's willing to take the risk and step forward and say, plant the flag and say, this is where we're going. And we're moving in that direction. Who's with me? And then you gather a team around your vision and work together to deliver on it. I guess you can say also, I mean, I guess the word maverick may apply. I'm like, people who told me I was nuts or crazy and were wrong. I'm like, what do they know? Like, I just dismiss them, right? But that's what entrepreneurs do. Like, that's how that works with entrepreneurs. We're kind of energized by being told it can't be done. And I think, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit and like, when you say things like entrepreneurial spirit, it can sound so cliche, right? That it gets used a lot. What it really means is there's people who are willing to focus in on a problem and figure out creatively how to solve it. And they're willing to work long, hard hours to do it. And they're willing to bring other people in to help them do it. You know, that's really what entrepreneurs are. They see that something can be built that doesn't exist yet. And that's how I think about what my role has been to build Clean Choice. Yeah. And that's interesting to hear your story and your experience. And from what it sounds like to me is you saw like a problem that needs to be fixed in clean energy. You're passionate about it. And you have a skill set that is extremely like valuable with technology and, you know, analyzing data information, how to market it, that you used in another sector that you could easily do it to another sector. So I can't imagine how difficult it was to become like a third-party energy supplier, but obviously building that team and finding good people who have that background. Absolutely. The fun thing is there's a lot of people who have those skills, but what they're looking for is something that's more impact and they're looking for something that has more meaning. And they're willing to like offer their skills around energy or utility services or whatever it is, because they actually want more meaning in their work than they were getting previously. And that's one of the benefits we have as a company is we're able to offer that meaning to our employees. Yeah, definitely, for sure. I mean, that's a great way of like getting, you know, top talent and obviously following your vision and leadership. So that's great to hear. And if you give advice to anyone who wanted to start a company or entrepreneur, would you give some advice? What would it be? I mean, obviously, that's a kind of loaded question because I'm sure there are multiple things. I mean, I think the number one thing is really understand what the problem is that you're solving, who you're solving it for. Build whatever the business or the nonprofit is that you're interested in around that thesis. The problem I'm solving is these people can't do this now or I can do it. And there's really generally three types of value propositions. You can do it better, you can do it faster, or you can do it cheaper, right? It's going to be one of those three. And you know, the iPhone, for example, is not cheaper, but boy, is it better and faster. Yes. So those are your three types of value propositions. And, you know, you're applying it against a specific problem. But if you can't say the problem I'm solving for the customer is whatever, in my case, it was renewable energy adoption can be too hard, then you need to 
go do something else probably. I mean, that's a great way of simplifying everything, right? Just look at those three questions. If it's really not there or two out of three, you know, there's no good answer for it, then maybe it's like not a company or nonprofit. That should maybe be. it's a research project or you know what? Maybe it's just today we don't know what it is. Maybe it still has to be cultivated and developed as an idea because it's made it's a piece of technology, but we don't know what to do with it. And maybe in six months we do. Entrepreneurship is also about a journey. It's not just like one static moment and how the world pivots around it. You just mentioned pivoting. You know, I'm sure you've made many pivots throughout the journey, you know, from what you initially thought when you started the company to where you are now. And I'm sure there are things that you never even thought of back then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we call it inside our company, uh, joyful funerals, meaning (laughs) when we decide to stop doing something, but we learned something when we tried to do it. And the joyful funeral is so helpful because you can say, I tried it, it didn't work, but I'm joyful that I learned something from the experience. That's just very important to embrace your failure as a learning experience. Definitely. That's another great advice, embracing failures as well. This has been a great interview, Tom. If our audience wants to learn more about Clean Choice Energy or you, what's the best way for them to do that? Our website is cleanchoiceenergy.com. You can totally go there or on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter as well as at Tom Matsy. So look us up. For sure. And it'll also be in the notes of the podcast. I've been enjoying following your Twitter account. You summarize a lot of like great things that are happening, not just the industry, but in general. And I found it pretty, you know, helpful. Thanks. I enjoy doing it when I can. And I have to remember to also tweet with grace. Sometimes, uh, you know, the medium can drag you into forgetting, you know, to be a good person. So, yeah. And it's been exciting. You know, I'm really impressed with what Clean Choice Energy has done. And I look forward to hearing more about it in the future. So thank you again, Tom. This has been a Thanks, Benoit. It's been great to meet you. And I love this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown. 